welcome to the intersection of Black culture and horticulture with your girl, Cola B. Talking. And guess what, y'all? We Black in the Garden. You have arrived at the intersection of Black culture and horticulture with your girl, Cola B. Talking, hostess with the mostest of Black in the Garden. Hey, thank you for tuning in to the Black in the Garden podcast. I am your host, Cola B. Talking, the hostess with the mostest of the podcast. No AKAs this week. Tune into the last few episodes if you're not familiar with how that works to hear some examples of that. We're going to be having some anniversary reflections. We're going to come in the spirit of gratitude because of the season is definitely the season of gratitude. And it is also the season of pumpkin spice, but we're going to we're going to unpack that a little bit in uh, a way that we haven't quite done before when it comes to how I'm going to share some information with y'all on this episode. And I'm very much looking forward to it, but we will get there. Thank y'all so much for tuning in. If you are new, you are welcome. You're a soil cousin. All right. That is all inclusive, heavy on the inclusive, not so much exclusive. We love you no matter how you identify, especially when it comes to gender. The soil is what connects us. And I love that for us. So if you're new here, you need to know that. And you should. The show is best received with your shoes off, if I'm honest, especially if you are able to do so with your with your feet in the soil. You know, that was what I had in mind when I started the show, the the celebration of the Black in the Garden podcast. We just have some really fun episodes that are coming up throughout the rest of the year to celebrate that. And if you are an OG soil cousin, then you know the vibes, you know what time it is. And if you're an OG soil cousin, <laughs> or new, it doesn't matter. I need to lead with an apology because I got real big and bad and audacious on the last episode and said that I was ready to do something that I wasn't entirely ready to do, which was come back to a weekly cadence of podcast production. Let's just call a thing a thing and understand that I I just didn't deliver on that. However, there is some news that I can't fully share yet because I don't have all the details. But I just want y'all to know that the good news is currently being printed. It's, it's literally on the press. But when it gets off the press, then I'll be able to share that with you. But what I can say is that I'm just positively overwhelmed with what is to come for the podcast that will make it so that... I won't be up here capping with y'all no more and I will legitimately be producing in a way that is that is consistent. Oh, and don't we all deserve this? Because there's so much we can unpack when it comes to this particular intersection that we find ourselves at. So before I go any further, I just want to make sure y'all know how to uh, talk back to me. You hear me talking to you. And I don't want to be the only one talking. All right. I am Cola B talking. And that is an indication in my name of the fact that I like to talk. But I also would like to think that I'm good at listening or at least reading text messages. So the number is 833-819-3926. And you should be 
texting me to tell me happy anniversary, if nothing else. And let me know how you found out about the show, how long you've been listening. Tell me about some of your favorite episodes or your favorite moments. This is the time of reflection for four years of producing the Black in the Garden podcast. So please, by all means, make sure that you save that number as either Black in the Garden or Cola Be Talking. Save it and hit me up. I want to hear from y'all. That's that's real. And support the podcast by going to the website. You can find all the relevant links in the episode notes so that you can do the things that people who really want to keep their favorite show going would do, which is buy the Black in the Garden coloring experience in this case. Bear with me if you if you hear for Plant Talk. We're getting there, I promise you. But this is just a little bit of housekeeping and a little bit of reflection on the anniversary of the podcast. And I'm going to talk just a bit about another way that you can support the podcast in just a moment. But before I do that, I want to give a shout out to Anybody who's ever started a show, whether you did one episode or 50 episodes, it's one thing to start a podcast, but it is quite a thing to start one and maintain one, especially if you can produce at least 20 episodes in a year. That's a significant accomplishment. I used to look differently at podcasts that didn't last. But I know better now because I know that for some who, let's just go all the way back to behind the the starting line. Some of y'all listening right now want to start a podcast. Mm -hmm. Am I talking to you? Are you feeling convicted? Do you feel a little tingle on your neck? If you want to start one, I do encourage you to do it. But I also encourage you to be aware and, and understand it's some work, child. And for that reason, because I know what I know now, I do look at podcasters who may have taken a long time to start a show. Some of y'all may know that it took me over nine months just to start this show after the conceptualization of it. And a lot of that did have to do with fear. Okay, we're getting into it. We're getting into my business and my feelings, but just stick with me. Some of y'all may have started a podcast. Maybe you've published it, maybe not. Okay, we're we're just taking the steps forward. If you have published a podcast and maybe you've published a few episodes and you just realize, eh, I don't really want to do this or, oh, this is just too much or like, who's going to pay for this? I feel you. I, I get the the wanting to quit or just quitting altogether. And I don't think that that's always something that should be shameful or frowned upon because you got to try a thing to really know if that's the thing that you should be doing. So shout out to y'all for even trying if you're in that category of having tried and just realize I can't really sustain this. It is it's definitely a marathon. It ain't no damn sprint. It's not a sprint, okay? <laughs> R.I.P. Sprint. <laughs> Who was bought out by T-Mobile? Just a tech joke. Just laugh. <laughs> but I know that if you can produce, I came up with the number 20 because I rounded down from 24. 
And so I just realized if you can produce two episodes a month out of 12 months, then that's approximately uh, 24 episodes in a year. And um, that may not seem like much to those prolific podcasters who are putting out like 87 episodes a year. Good on y'all. But typically it takes a particular skill set combined with a, a sense of dedication. And it always helps to have a healthy dose of help. Everybody don't be having help like that. I have not always had help. There have been years and weeks and months where I have had to push all the buttons. So I'm just saying all that to say, y'all, I, I understand every way that you can be in this space. But what I know for sure in reference to podcasting being a marathon is it's something that you got to really pace yourself in and really figure out how in the world you is going to keep it going. Okay. And let's get into a little analogy that I've used on the show before, which is of a, a tomato plant. If you don't know the difference between determinate and indeterminate tomatoes, guess what? There's an opportunity to learn and Auntie Google will tell you all about it. All right. Because I'm trying to make my point. So an indeterminate tomato for the sake of this analogy is one that will just grow unchecked and generally for a gardener who cares about like keeping things tidy and keeping the amount of space that that plant could take in check uh you would want to tie it up in some kind of way trellis it um attach some kind of support system to it that allows it to grow unchecked they're just not all over the place but maybe you put them on a nice little structure that makes it easier for you to access them and take care of them and prune them and the like. So when it comes to this podcast feeling like an indeterminate tomato plant, <laughs> it's because like I knew it was going to get to a size, but I did not fully appreciate the trellising aspect of it. And when I say that, I don't just mean finding like executive producers and editors and sound engineers and shout out to everybody who's ever worked on this show in any capacity. You can look at the episode notes and you can see credits. I've been a lot more specific about putting those credits in the episode notes. But I don't just mean the people. I mean, just simple infrastructure that comes along with maintaining something that if you want to keep something going for a long time, it's best to be organized about the thing. Okay, like what all these audio files, where are they at? Are they organized? Uh, scripts, if you got scripts, what are you doing with those? You got notes for the episode, you got resources and research and all that kind of thing. And you need to actually have some organization to how it goes. And I'm giving you a tomato analogy. It's a holistic approach that we're taking to podcasting, especially being at the intersection of culture and plants. So that support infrastructure, I'm saying that in reference to looking at how I'm more organized in the fourth year than I've ever been organized before, because I've actually taken the time to get my little Google Drive together and be organizing all of the information that I have. And that's 
one of many aspects of keeping your podcast in order. Maybe you have guests. That's a whole different folder because there's outreach, there's consent forms and the like and booking them and and things of that nature. Another of many aspects. The BTS is real, okay? And if you are organized about your thing early in the game, the better off that you will be. And perhaps some of those who started a show and didn't keep it going may not have understood all of the intricate details that come along with that and was like, I don't want to do all this. Now I ain't signed up for all this damn work. I just want to talk. I'm called to be talking. What you think I want to do? <laughs> so I would love to encourage uh, someone who may have started a show and stopped the show to maybe think about picking it back up. You know, people get real optimistic around this time of year thinking about what they finna do for the new year. So I encourage you in that. And I I feel like encouragement is like my love language. Yes, encouragement is a love language that I speak very well. So just encouraging y'all and, and uh, wanting y'all to appreciate uh, the, the things that come along with making something last for as long as you possibly can. So by now you're probably like, well, how can I support? Okay, boom, Patreon. We're going to do a lot more with it in the upcoming year, but we're not going to wait that long. But here's the perk now, because people don't be signing up for Patreon just because they just want to drop coin. But you want to get something too. And I don't blame you because I'm very much the girl that's like, I'm leaving here with something. And what I want you to leave with are, are you ready for this? I feel like I should do a drum roll. Come on, sound effects. Okay, so we are opening the vault. If you were aware of TV advertisements during a certain period of time, especially in the 90s, especially when VHS was a thing, you remember them Disney commercials where they'd be like, we opened in the vault, we got the old classics, we done remastered them and we bringing them hoes back out. We gonna put it on the DVD. We gonna put it on the VHS. I'm not saying I'm doing all of that. Okay. But what we are doing is we are opening the vault. And what I mean by that is unreleased episodes. I'm not sure I ever even mentioned the fact that there are a bit of unreleased episodes. Y'all, there was this one episode. It's an incredible episode. And I wish you could have heard it. It's not even in the vault. And the reason why is because I never pressed record. It took me at least a solid about 36 minutes into this interview with two people before I realized that I didn't even hit record. And I still feel that shame. I still sometimes wake up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat, like, you <laughs> didn't press record. It was so good. But here we are now talking about opening up that vault with some really amazing guests, some really great conversations. And I put out all the episodes that I've recorded. And it don't have nothing to do with how I feel about any of those guests. I, I hold every guest that I've ever invited on this show in the highest regard. 
But my process at the time when I recorded some episodes, especially before 2022, was very much like, I just didn't get to put it out. But I do have a vault of unreleased episodes. And if you want to hear those episodes, we will begin the uploading process by the beginning of December 2023. And we will be putting out a majority of the vaulted episodes and it will be exclusively available on Patreon. You heard, and they are also unedited. That's right. You're getting all of the tea from the Ruta to the Tuta. All right. So uh, support by clicking the link in the episode notes so that you can go ahead and be subscribed to the Patreon so that you can have that access. I always say for the cost of a bag of soil, you can support the podcast. I want that for you. I love that for you. Giving gratitude to the soil cousins who have been listening from the beginning to the middle to now. Some of y'all might have been listening and and gone away for a while and come back. Shit, I myself might have been making the show and gone away and came back. So I definitely wanted to touch on challenges just a little bit as I was talking about that trellis earlier and not feeling like, whoo, I, I might could have put that trellis up a little bit better or could have put a trellis up at all just to help me to sustain the growth that is happening. Growth is a good thing. Not being prepared for the growth, it could be a bit uncomfortable, but there's always ways to try to adjust and try to keep up, okay? And what I'm recognizing most recently is two big things. One, it has a lot to do with my mental health. And so I am taking a lot more care to take care of and sustain my mental health as I am uh, growing with the show because the show is so much a part of me that the Black in the Garden podcast, in case you forgot, <laughs> it's such a, it literally came from me just being the vessel that brought this into the world. It's challenged me in that way. So I'm looking forward to reconnecting with a therapist. By now, it's just like, Sometimes you just be slipping and need a little assistance to make sure that you ain't slipping too much. So I'm proud of me for doing that. And I hope that you are proud of me for doing that as well, because there are some very specific things that, if I'm totally honest, have affected the show. And I just don't want those challenges to be present anymore. So let me get some help. My mental health support is a part of my trellis. Okay. I like how this analogy is really sticking. <laughs> So another challenge that I have faced is as I have started to work with more people this year than I've ever worked with in the previous years of Black in the Garden, I recognize, and I'll unpack this a little bit more later, but what I can say is when you're the one that's in charge of the thing and is the one who has the vision for the thing that makes you the leader because everybody who's working with you or for you has to be able to understand the vision in the way that you describe it. You got to be able to like delegate the things. And um, for some people, it comes more naturally than others. There's been a reasonable learning curve for me and I'm still 
in the curb curve if i'm honest so just personal and professional development they're not really that different <laughs> but that's another part of the trellis of maintaining the black in the garden podcast so plantrepreneurship and horticultural communication and all of those other fancy words that i use in the description is even more of an indication as to how much it's grown because there's so many levels and layers to existing at the intersection of black culture and horticulture is all about adding value i hope that you are receiving the value that i am putting out there for you but in doing that research and pulling it all together uh, i've found that the intellectual fatigue can get very real. And it's not just around just finding the information and sorting the information and putting it together in a way so that I can bring it to you. But it is also combined with that creative kind of um, fatigue that comes along with having an abundance of ideas. You would think that was a good thing, right? There's pros and cons. But sometimes having so many things that you want to talk about means if you don't have a plan, once again, infrastructure and trellising, right? Okay, just speaking to my challenges, just having some reflection with you on today. If you don't have a plan and you got all these ideas, then WTF is you really doing? So here I am wanting to be a more planned and more organized producer of a podcast like this because it, it needs to keep going. The value is high and it's apparent. And I'm gonna stick beside it. So you know this show celebrates the intersection of black culture and horticulture. And it tries to celebrate as much as possible. But we cannot overlook the overwhelming majority of plants that are being connected to the exploitation of people of color. And if you're looking for a specific example, I've said this before on the podcast, on the Real Cost of Chocolate episode, it's actually one of the, one of my favorite episodes. It's a human thing to have favorites and stuff anyway. We, we really did a lot there. We had a chocolate botanist to talk about chocolate scandals, but the exploitation of people of color and even children. And we're actually about to get into that in this discussion of pumpkin spice, something that just seems so fun and festive and, and not connected to murder and exploitation, but people have been killed behind it. And we're talking about centuries ago, not, <laughs> not y'all fighting down to the grocery store <laughs> on Thanksgiving's Eve like 10 minutes before the store closed and you pulling up on somebody and you y'all catching eyes picture the pov you locking eyes with miss miss thing and y'all looking at the shelf and it's only one jar of pumpkin spice and now it's a fight to the death that's not what i'm talking about but hear me out <laughs> so let's just go ahead and get into it actually because i saw a very recent post on one of my favorite Instagram accounts that you will be hearing me talk about this account a lot more because this account is very similar in 
nature to the type of information that I share. The plants and culture page, let me just be specific because I done pulled it up and so I want you to get into it. You should be following it on Instagram if you're not already. Plants.and.culture is the BIPOC educational platform exploring the many ways our politics, economics, and culture are shaped by plants. Sound just a little bit, just a little bit familiar, yeah? So I saw their post about the dark history of pumpkin spice. And if you tap into my Instagram at Black in the Garden, quickly enough after hearing this episode, that story would still be up on my stories. But let me read through the carousel post and shout out to whoever does this page because I don't even know who it is. If if you the person, please email me, hit me up because obviously you know a lot of stuff. Just right quick, just in the Plants and Culture Instagram page, they're talking about America's rebranding of apple pie. They're talking about the enduring strength of Uganda's bark cloth. Like everything they talk about, I'm like, ooh, over 200 posts of facts, okay? They're getting into the tea on the banana empire and the power and influence of the United Fruit Company, how Britain and the monarchy profited from slavery, Juneteenth and the African hibiscus, and they do list their sources. So let's get into their most recent posts. That is the reason for the season. I mean that loosely. The dark history of pumpkin spice. So I'm going to read through this post first. It does quote an article from the Washington Post. And I'm going to uh, read that article and talk through it with you in observation of the pumpkin spice season around this time where we're getting into the Thanksgiving of it all and all of these nasty pumpkin pies that y'all are getting ready to consume. Yeah, I said it and you can fight me. Pumpkin pie nasty anyway. But do I use pumpkin pie spice in my sweet potato pie? Yes, it's interchangeable. But now are, after I read all of this, am, are we going to think about these spices the same way? Very likely not. I'm already shook. But let's get into understanding the dark history of pumpkin spice. I'm reading now. With the arrival of fall comes the arrival of all things pumpkin spice, a fragrant mix featuring cinnamon, clove, and nutmeg. It just smells so good. Despite the growing demand and popularity of pumpkin spice, most people remain unaware of the fraught colonial history of these highly sought after spices. And the interesting thing, this is not reading right now. The interesting thing <laughs> about like anything that indicates a colonial history is some fuck shit. Like, sorry to get so vulgar, but like I, that it's just, it's bad. It's real bad. So you got to use language that reflects that. But y'all, the scandal, the violence, the carnage, abusing People of color in particular, let me just keep going. I'm sorry, because I'm getting hot right now. Already, only one slide in. Reading. In 1621, the Dutch East India Company, in parentheses, it says VOC. We'll unpack that another time. The Dutch East India Company led its most powerful campaign against the Bandanese of the Banda Islands, an archipelago located 
in modern day Indonesia. The population of around 15,000 Bandanese was decimated to just a few hundred in a few months. You heard that right, I'm gonna keep on going. The Dutch company was later accused of carrying out what some describe as the first instance of corporate genocide. Dot, dot, dot. And it was all for nutmeg. I'm still here. I just had to pause because that was a lot. Corporate genocide. The first instance of corporate genocide. I'm just going to keep going. Just you pause as you need and reflect as you will. Amboina. It's spelled A-M-B-O-I-N-A. And I, I do hope that I'm saying that correctly. A set of nearby islands, also in Indonesia, was famous for cloves. The fight to control the clove trade was almost as bloody and dramatic as the battles for nutmeg and nearly drove the Netherlands and England to war in the early 17th century. And this is all about, oh, that was for cloves. Okay, the clove trade. Okay, the battles for nutmeg. Wow, 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 wow. Spices, y'all. We fighting over spices. <laughs> Continuing. For hundreds of years, true, and we use in air quotes, true cinnamon only grew in Sri Lanka. So whoever controlled the island would dominate the cinnamon trade. Under Portuguese rule, boys as young as 12 were forced to peel cinnamon. Once again, like I said, this is me talking, not reading. In the Real Cost of Chocolate episode, we specifically discussed child labor, child slavery, in relation to chocolate cultivation. And here we are talking about a whole different type of thing. And we got young boys children being forced to peel cinnamon. I'm going to continue reading. Once the Dutch took control of the island in 1658, they demanded any person who could stand up and walk with the help of a stick to peel cinnamon. Those who attempted to flee were tied and tortured like high criminals. All this for spices. Just, just, I'm just saying, I'm going to continue reading. In their pursuit of mass-produced crops, European powers relocated spice plants to their other colonial territories, such as Grenada, Mauritius. I feel like I never say that right. Mauritius? Let's just go with the word. Um, and Reunion. Let me run that back. In their pursuit of mass-produced crops, European powers relocated spice plants to their other colonial colonial territories. Boom. Upon arrival, they established plantations and imported enslaved laborers to work the land. Sounds familiar. Over time, the increase in supply led to a drop in price, making these spices more affordable and appealing not only to European but eventually to American consumers as well. These sales de deepened and perpetuated 
the exploitative industry. It's always some exploitation. Why it got to be just, let me keep going. By the mid 19th century, nutmeg, mace, cloves, cinnamon, and ginger became common and foods such as gingerbread cake, spice cake, and spiced pumpkin and apple pies became indelible parts of American food history. I'm gonna keep going. Upon entering Western recipes and cookbooks, these spices were wiped clean, in air quotes, clean, in air quotes, of their brutal colonial past. Let me see, where to go with this? Something about American food history and so many aspects of American history being linked to some form of brutality and exploitation of some group of people. And then also, as I'm going to talk about a little bit more as I get into this article, not just exploitation and such of people and their labor, but so often, so regularly, also in the interest this exploitation is happening in the interest of cultivation of something. And usually when we're saying cultivation, that term is typically associated with, you guessed it, plants. Because <laughs> what episode, I mean, not episode, <laughs> what podcast are you listening to? Don't you forget. All right. So the source for this post is a very recent article in the Washington Post written by Maham Javaid. I feel like I'm saying that right, but I could be wrong, but I tried and much respect to the correct pronunciation. The name of the article is Fall's Favorite Spice Blend Has a Violent History. I don't know about you, but if I see that, I'm gonna click on it. You know what I'm saying? It's just like, what? what you mean? What? Like, the pumpkin spice is, there's violence there? Like, tell me more. Not in a, I'm looking for the drama way, but like, in disbelief kind of way. So I'm going to just read this article through to you and just kind of like, you know, pause and reflect a little bit on some of the points that I find particularly outstanding. And uh, that's what we're going to do, just an observation of the pumpkin spice season and, and really unpacking this post from uh, Plants and Culture. So shout out once again to that page for uh, being such an awesome source of information and for naming their source so that we can really get into the things. And um, let's get into it. So from the top, from the top, the invaders struck the island from three sides simultaneously. The Dutch fleet of 1,655 soldiers and sailors and more than a dozen wooden ships landed at the Banda Islands, an archipelago located in modern-day Indonesia in 1621. It was the most powerful military campaign the Dutch East India Company had sent to Asia thus far thus far. After a swift Bandanese surrender, the victors rounded up local leaders, 
They signed treaties that turned the Bandanese into Dutch subjects, then tortured them for confessions, revealing alleged plots to attack the Dutch. I'm telling you, and the Dutch are the people who who have historically occupied the Netherlands, by the way. And I just think that it's worth saying that our perception of those places and those people, and I ain't trying to say that those people, the, the Dutch, especially the white Dutch, which is most of the Dutch, are are all terrible people to this day. But it, it is worth pointing out that our modern day contemporary, um, what is the word I'm looking for? Perception of the Dutch is not this. But them motherfuckers got some violence in their history. The nerve, okay? Let me continue. Thousands were killed, others enslaved, and many who fled to the mountains were starved out. And we're talking about the Dutch, y'all. I'm just saying what I said. I'm just saying what I said. Continuing, the population of around 15,000 Bandanese was decimated to just a few hundred in a few months. That is exponential decimation. My goodness. Um, and this was a quote from Adam Clulo, who is a historian and professor at the University of Texas at Austin, who goes on to say the Dutch company was later accused of carrying out what some describe as the first instance of corporate genocide, which is uh, that quote is being repeated because I just read that in the Plants and Culture Instagram post. And Clulo indicated that it was all for nutmeg. It was all for nutmeg. I'm gonna just keep going. At the time, nutmeg, one of the three key spices in the blend, as in pumpkin spice blend, known as pumpkin, oh, I just said it, I'm sorry. I, I was reading it, but I didn't. I didn't read enough. So let me run that back. At the time, nutmeg, one of the three key spices in the blend known as pumpkin spice, grew nowhere else in the world. It was considered a miraculous substance, rumored to cure the plague, make consumers more beautiful, sharpen the memory and calm the mind, Clulo said. Hmm. And I'm just going to keep going because I was going to say something else, but it's 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 not quite on point. So but imagine that, though, like it's giving superfood, right? It's definitely giving superfood. And it's worth pausing just a second to indicate that something that I've been wanting to say anyway on the podcast, which is superfoods are not particularly special in 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 the way that we are led to believe that they are because just that term is a marketing buzzword and what happens to crops when they are labeled as superfoods is this type of shit right here it the demand goes up exponentially and the greed goes up the same and the exploitation that happens amongst those who are cultivating that thing 
because people are still being exploited to these, this day in the cultivation of the things, including children. Worth noting that that term superfood is basically what would have been applied to nutmeg in reference to these miracle cures that it was said to be able to uh, benefit people with, calling it a miraculous substance. Curing the plague, girl, I would want me some nutmeg as well. Like, I would definitely be paying top dollar for that. You talking about us curing the plague and I'm going to be fine too because it's going to make me more beautiful. <laughs> Sharpen the memory. Yeah, sign me up. I want some nutmeg, you know, but I'm going to continue. Today, you can buy a jar of the spice mix typically made with cinnamon, nutmeg, cloves, and ginger for as little as $2.39 or drink it in Starbucks' perennially popular pumpkin spice latte, confident that the nutmeg wasn't grown through means of violence. Now, two things right quick. If you don't want to hear all my commentary, you just want to read the article straight through, go read the damn article. I'm going to link it in the episode notes. <laughs> However, when it comes to Starbucks, and this is my second point before I continue, Starbucks, y'all, like, we can find a lot of fault with Starbucks. And I say this as somebody who has been a consumer of Starbucks and has definitely um, bought into the hype of the marketing of it all and the experience of it all. It, it really, you know, they're giving you an experience, but they are also a big push pusher of the pumpkin spice culture, right? But the other thing about Starbucks and their coffee culture is they have completely in their marketing and all of that flipped the coffee culture. And, and when I say flipped, I mean they have changed the association of the origins of the actual coffee plant from Africa, specifically... Ethiopia, if I'm not mistaken, and that's the episode that's in the vault, by the way, there's there's a conversation with a coffee purveyor, black coffee purveyor. We're getting off track. But I know this because of that conversation that I had. Shout out to Coffee Black. That's C-X-F-F-E-E. -E, if you're looking for them on Instagram or if you're looking for their business in Memphis. But they helped me to understand the depth of how much Starbucks has really changed the narrative on what, where coffee cultivation actually takes place. And then also involved in this pumpkin spice <laughs> drama. So no surprise there, but worth mentioning. I'll continue. Some spices are part of a natural course of trade, said Sarah Wasberg Johnson, a food historian. It just happens that the main spices in pumpkin spice are fraught with colonizer histories. And you know, usually that's never good. Generally, mm -mm -mm, real bad. That was me. Continuing, while the Banda Islands grew nutmeg, Amboina, a set of nearby islands also in Indonesia, was famous for cloves. The fight to control the clove trade was almost as bloody and dramatic as the battles for nutmeg and nearly drove 
the Netherlands and England to war in the 17th century, said Clulo, who was a spice historian. Another thing worth mentioning, and this is a big shout out to the homie who has been on the show, homie, soil cousin, all those good things, KJ of Black Food Fridays posted something. This wasn't a part of our conversation on the show, but I remember he posted something about the way that Europeans have done all of this genociding (laughs) and harm in the pursuit of spice to control the trade and, you know, make all this money or whatever and harming all these people but also historically have distanced themselves from from even seasoning their food with these said spices because of this whole other kind of like weird uh, imperialist kind of, no, not imperialist, elitist, take imperialist out, I didn't mean to say that, elitist way of thinking about and perceiving like what's fancy and what's high class and how food is prepared and served. No seasoning, like just, just weird. Just, just a lot of weirdness with all that, but I'm gonna keep going. Cinnamon, mostly cultivated in Sri Lanka, was first controlled by the Portuguese, then the Dutch, and eventually the British, according to the Sri Lanka Export Development Board. It was after the 1500s when European explorers wanted to bypass the middlemen and create monopolies over sought-after spices that the willingness to trade with indigenous people dwindled and things started to get violent, Johnson said. Yikes. It's true that if we didn't consume food that hadn't been touched by slavery and indigenous displacement, we wouldn't be eating a lot of food, Johnson said. I want y'all to catch that word. Let me say that. Let me just run that back. Let me run that back because I should have led with this, really. It's true that if we didn't consume food that hadn't been touched by slavery and indigenous displacement, we wouldn't be eating a lot of food. But whenever foods enter the pop culture lexicon the way pumpkin spice has in the U.S., it's important to acknowledge how it reached us. Agreed. Continuing, pumpkin spice products are firmly established as an economic juggernaut today. In it. And that's on Trader Joe's, okay? Sales of pumpkin spice products, in parentheses, not including those at restaurants and coffee shops, totaled more than $802 million in the year ending July 2023. Okay, let me make sure I understood that correctly. Sales totaled what? Does is, does that mean like in all time? 802 million in all time or the year ending in 2023? Let me just run that back one more time. Pumpkin spice products are firmly established as an economic juggernaut today. Sales of pumpkin spice products totaled more than 802 million in the year ending in yeah, that's one year. Yikes. 2023. So from July 2022 
to July 23, 802 million in cumulative pumpkin spice products sales. I be believing the hype though. Like, I'm not going to lie. It's not like I ain't never bought no pumpkin spice products, but like getting into the history, <laughs> that'll make you think a little, that'll make you think. And that's, that's what I want y'all to do. Just food for thought, literally, but preferably not pumpkin spice food. Okay. In the 17th century, continuing, the average European knew about nutmeg and cloves, but probably didn't have access to them, Johnson said. But once the plantations began using enslaved laborers to mass produce the crops, the increase in supply caused the price to fall. Mm, that's, come on, economics. Let's get into the economics, okay? Continuing. Over the next century, supply increased because the spice plants were taken to other regions, including Mauritius and Reunion, and eventually Sri Lanka and Grenada. Soon, the once exclusive exclusive spices could be found in recipe books. Now, I'm glad that they mentioned Grenada because in my following of Amanda Seals and just listening to her talk about being from Grenada, because that's where she's from, uh, I learned from her just in her making that reference, because, you know, when you're from somewhere and people don't really know nothing about it, then you just kind of say, well, here's a fun fact about this place. I remember her saying that Grenada was like the nutmeg cap capital of the world. And interesting to know that it wasn't the original place where nutmeg was even grown. But because of all this greed and all of that, it had to be imported, is that the word? Exported to Grenada. Um, and then, like I said, soon the once exclusive spices could be found in recipe books. Just getting back to the article, because I'm going kind of long, but this is just going to be a long ass episode. Why not? Let's have a good time. Continuing, one of the earliest recipes for pumpkins, pumpkin pie was written by Amelie Simmons in the first ever American cookbook published in 19... Oh, ooh, let me let me stop lying. Ooh, let me run it back. Uh, published the first ever American cookbook published in 1796. It used lots of sugar and spices. The Washington Post previously reported. By the mid-19th century, nutmeg, mace, cloves, cinnamon, and ginger became common. And foods such as gingerbread cake, spice cake, and spiced pumpkin and apple pies became indelible parts of American food history, Johnson said. Soon, you didn't even have to blend pumpkin spice at home. It came prepackaged in a bottle. Hold on. So interesting. I love these cakes though. Because like I'm a mm, this is my favorite year, favorite time of year to bake. And I'm definitely, and I'm a good baker, by the way, y'all, in case y'all didn't know, I don't be bragging all the time because I don't want y'all blowing me up asking me for cakes. But I love me a gingerbread cake. I remember the first time that I made gingerbread cookies from scratch, and I was geeked to have to be able to put all that spice in there and to just 
have the experience of the aromas and everything. It really is a beautiful thing, you know, to to experience in a sensory way what happens with these spices. It, it really is a beautiful thing, you know, but it's it's not a beautiful thing to know about all the stuff that we're getting into right now. So, whew, American food history, child, the violence, okay? Soon you didn't even have to blend pumpkin spice at home. So I feel like I kind of missed, but I get it. I, I, if I read correctly uh, or if I recall correctly, I, I, I see the implication being that the pumpkin spy mit pumpkin spy. Wow, wow, wow. Pumpkin pie spice mix was not originally a mix. It was a recipe for, hey, you put these spices together in this proportion or whatever you prefer and you got your PSL. Oh no, that's the latte. P pumpkin. Never mind. I don't know. I don't know the abbreviations, the acronyms, but you got your pumpkin spy. Pumpkin spy. Why can't I say it right? Pumpkin pie spice. Yikes. Continuing. So it came prepackaged in a bottle. I said that already. Contrary to popular opinion, Johnson believes that McCormick was not the first company to create pumpkin pie spice. <laughs> I'm going to keep going, but I'm going to stop in a sec. Thompson and Taylor beat the company to it by at least a year. Okay. And Johnson cites an advertisement for Thompson and Taylor's pumpkin pie spice in a 1933 issue of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, while McCormick's website says it manufactured the original spice in 1934. So here's a fun fact, because I feel like by now, many of you listening, especially if you read my updated bio, are aware of the fact that I was once a trucker. And in my journeys and experience in trucking, it took me to somewhere up in the D.C. area where there is a McCormick factory and that at the time with me being the black foodie that i am and and very black at that in in the first place one who was a a, a food not food a seasoning enthusiast okay to go to the mccormick factory <laughs> that felt like going home in some kind of way and the sensory experience of pulling up to that factory was so cool because it smelled really good. And I know that anybody who lives around there that's been around there, because somebody listening to this knows exactly where I'm talking about. It's like right down the street from a Wegmans, by the way, because I remember I had went down to the Wegmans when I was waiting for them to figure out what they was going to do with my load. And I had got me a nice little plate from the hot bar. And I also bought an aloe. But we ain't here to get into all of that. I'm just saying I have been to a McCormick plant in my experience in doing the things. And um, it was an interesting experience. They didn't give me no free spices, but hey, you know, your girl was working. Okay. But yeah, um, McCormick's being, you know, definitely one of the top names, if not the top name in seasoning and spices. Uh, was not the original purveyor or manufacturer 
of the pumpkin pie spice because Thompson and Taylor them beat them to the punch. And I know that they're sore about it because <laughs> they're not really going to argue with anybody who says that they were the original. They would love to have you believe that. And I think it would be worth looking into because I didn't do that research. It would be worth looking into the McCormick's and um, their involvement in all of this uh, spice scandal. Okay, I think that might be the name of this episode, something like that. But continuing, another early reference to pumpkin spice, and I'm reading this, I'm not saying it wrong, appears to be a 1936 recipe that ran in the post. Pumpkin spice cake is a desirable dessert for a family dinner and a healthful pick-me-up for children after school. Okay, okay. Read an outdated recipe referring to pumpkin as a food of the Italian peasantry, the Post reported. And I just don't like the shade of pumpkins being referred to as a food of anybody's peasantry. But I, I guess... And once again, worth another rabbit hole worth falling down, which is like, how y'all just going to assign pumpkins to Italian peasantry? Like <laughs> the concept of certain types of foods being associated with uh, different classes. Well, I feel like there's a whole class for that, but we're not here for that. So I'll continue reading. I'm going to read what's in parentheses here. I was going to skip it, but uh, the author indicated that they used every pumpkin spy, spice product that they could find for a week and said that their armpits now smell like nutmeg. I'll take their word for it. Continuing. When the Dutch had first landed on the Banda Islands, they behaved like traitors. In 1599, they paid a port fee and bartered nutmeg for cotton and other manufactured goods. Wow, wow, wow. Just a lot of a lot of crops that are we all know about cotton, child. We the black folks still not over that. So <laughs> nutmeg was 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 at the source of drama and and violence and such and Listen, we just did a whole ass episode about cotton. Shout out to Julius Tillery. Gang, gang. All right, I'll continue. Their, night, their 1621 conquest sprang from years of failed attempts to win a monopoly over nutmeg, Clulo said. A lot of commodities have terrible histories. There's sugar and tobacco to think about, he said. But nutmeg, now used in pumpkin spice, has the most compressed, terrible history. Thousands were killed. Thousands. I feel like Cotton done beat them out though. And that's, what a shitty competition, right? Which crop is associated with the most violence? Yikes. And I didn't even know, I wouldn't have even known outside of even doing the Black in the Garden podcast that sh the, the ways that sugar was harmful 
not just to the people who are cultivating it, but the people who were in the immediate environment of where sugar cultivation was taking place because of there's one aspect of the processing or cultivation where they have to burn it or something like that. Ciao. Talk to Auntie Google about it because I'm going to finish this article. All right. Continuing today, and we're almost done, by the way, nutmeg has no negative connotations. Wow. Just like wiped it away. No negative connotations, he said. Photos of Starbucks pumpkin spice latte, however, remind Clulo of still life paintings by Dutch masters from the 17th century. Still life with a turkey pie painted by Peter Kleis in 1627 depicts a table filled with luxurious products, olives, savory pies, fruits, nutmeg, and cloves. He described the painting as the ultimate symbol of stunningly opulent globalized consumption in the 17th century. It's the same with these Starbucks lattes, he said. You're getting stuff from all over the world and repackaging it for wealthy consumers without acknowledging the history of the ingredients. And that's the end of the article. <sighs> A lot to think about. This article has 200 comments on it. I didn't even click into that. But I, I'm, I will go ahead and say it. I would just start by saying that I think that it would be great. It would be a really good look and it would be a very responsible look for Starbucks to make an announcement if they have not already. Just an acknowledgement of like what's really good with their products or what's really shit with their products as far as the history to to be more specific. Um, there's an opportunity for, you know, in, in what is the word I'm looking for? Education. And just think about it like a land acknowledgement when it comes to institutions that know that they are taking up space in places where indigenous people were once thriving. But obviously it'd be too much like right, but just worth considering. So Soil Cousins, y'all got my number. Okay, I'm gonna repeat it one more again. I'm tired. This has been a, a long episode. And I just want y'all to text me by now. 833-819-3926 is the number. Would love to hear your thoughts. Would love to hear any additional feedback, any facts, books, sources, whatever you may have to share about your insights or anything that came up with you. This episode is particularly long because we just took a moment for reflection on the fourth anniversary of the Black in the Garden podcast and then went straight into the history of pumpkin pie spice, the dark history. So very, very dark. My goodness, we can't do this often because it's dark. And I told you we like to celebrate around here, but y'all got my number hit me up, find me on the socials, go ahead and get plugged into that Patreon, do all the things, tap all the buttons, support, tag, repost, all that good stuff. Just show your girl some love. 
for the fourth anniversary. I know how to say it. Fourth anniversary of the Black in the Garden podcast. I'm showing you the love before I even got it from you anyway, by taking the time to tell y'all about this and enlighten you about the many factors of my curiosity that I do get to satisfy just by doing this show. Thank you so much for listening, especially if you listen to the last words that I say. That's how I know you're a real one. And I appreciate you for that. So I will see you on the next episode. I want to wish you love, light, and soil. Let me get a little vocal rest and get ready to continue the celebration of the fourth anniversary of the podcast. Peace.